Please join with me um, in reading the word in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband.' Then she kissed them, and and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, "'No, we will return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I might have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Good morning, everyone. My notes, I don't know what to say until my notes pulled up, so just hold on. I am Dan Ware. I am one of the deacons here at BC, and I am also an MC leader. And today we're starting a series on the book of Ruth. Four-part series, four chapters, four sermons. Um, I'm preaching one. Sean Freeman is preaching two. Tim Fenton is preaching three, and Daniel Miller is four. So it's 
spoil that for you, sorry. Um, but before we get started, I'm going to talk to the kids. So can I see where the kids are out here? All right. Okay, you put your hands down. I want you to, I'm going to have some pictures up here. And if you, they're a picture of some books, okay? And if you have the book in your house, I want you to raise your hand, okay? So the first one is this one, Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a good one. All right, put your hands down. Next one, The Biggest Story. All right, put your hands down. And then the, these next are a couple of them, a series, Long Story Short and Old Story New. One, I found the, the oddball. All right, so um, can any of you kids tell me something similar between all the, those books? What's something similar you got, Marshall? They're all about the Bible. Eleanor? Uh, they're about God and the way the kids will understand. What was that? That was scary. Okay. Um, so, uh, look, think about the titles. Something similar about the titles. Maybe a word that they share. Can, what you got? They all say story. Yep. Because we know, and our parents teach us that, God tells a story, right? The Bible is a big story. And God is writing, has written a story in the Bible, and he's writing a story in history. And it's going to come to a really cool, awesome ending when Jesus comes back. But another question, does God only care about the big events of the story and the really important characters? No. He also cares about those seemingly insignificant ones too, right? He cares about our story too, right? Jesus himself came near people that were just regular fishermen, right? He entered their story and he cared about them. And Jesus told us that the Father's eyes are on us, and he used birds to help us understand that. So do any of you know what kind of bird this is? Yeah, it's a really common one. Eleanor? It's a sparrow. Good job. I think. Uh, But uh, so in Matthew 10... Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then in Matthew 6, he said, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then also in today's sermon, we see the story of Ruth and Naomi, and the events that are in the book seem pretty small and insignificant, but we see that God sees them and cares about their story and is with them, and the way that they respond to God is is what we're going to look at today. But uh, one more question. Have any of you kids heard the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow? But I thought. It's it's a pretty old one, but uh, I've thought of it when I was thinking about this this kid's sermon. Uh, one of the verses says, Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. 
So when we're happy and life is good, we can know that God sees us and he cares about our well-being. But also when we're sad and things are difficult and we're hurting, we can remember that God sees us and cares about our story. His eye is on the little birds, and you are way more valuable than they are. So today, as your homework, I want you to go home and ask your parents to read a story from one of those books, and also maybe you look up that song and see if you can find it. So, and I have, actually have a task for you kids for the rest of the sermon, so you're going to have to pay attention, okay? So I'm going to occasionally bring up this picture during the sermon, and when it comes up, I want you to say, I know he watches me, okay? So let's try it here, okay? I'm preaching along, preaching along, and then I know he watches me. All right, good job. Thank you, kids. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for this time that you bless us to be uh, gathered together as your people under your watchful eye and your care. Thank you that you do so much for us every day and um, that your, your eyes on the sparrow, but you see us and you know us and you, you want good things for us and pray that we would learn how to acknowledge you better in all of our ways this morning through your word. Pray that your truth would stand and that everything else would, would not. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So, Book of Ruth, before I get into it, I want to acknowledge that this is probably a very well-known story to most of you, and it probably even has some significance in your life and what it means to you. So I'm probably going to brush through some things you would have camped out on and maybe missed some things. So I would love to have more conversation if anybody wanted to talk about it some more. And I'm sure that's true of the other three that are preaching. I've just been really encouraged as I've been studying and preparing. So this book has a lot of things going for it. It's a good story. It's romantic and maybe a little scandalous. And it's about redemption and it's short. And the theme of chapter one today is, to sum it up, faith through loss, the call to leave everything and follow Jesus. So I won't go into a great length on the background and uh, synopsis of the book because it does a good job telling the story. But a couple of background things is uh, it was probably written around the pinnacle of David's kingship, which would have been 150 to 180 years after the events of the story. And this book was also used in liturgical ceremonies. It was one of five scrolls or megala that were used during certain festivals. The other four books like that are Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. That was interesting. As for the story itself, it does a pretty good job of setting the context and giving us the time and place. So we'll just dig in here at verse 1, and it says, In the days when the judges ruled. So this happens in the middle of the book of Judges, and we know that the book of Judges is a story of a cycle of sin that Israel turns away from the Lord, and then God sends a judge, judges them, they turn back, and then they turn away again, and just this continuing cycle. And the end of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no king, this is before Saul or David, and there's just general resistance to the Lord. 
It says there was a famine, and most guess that it's the one mentioned in Judges 6, the devastation of the land by the Midianites. It's described in 6, 1 through 10. To sum it up, the Midianites come against Israel. They take away the seed as it's planted. God sends a prophet to tell them that it's his hand. He's the one that's brought, brought this famine. And that the reason for it is that he had delivered them mightily from Egypt, but they had turned away from him. And at the end of that, uh, his description in verse 10, he says, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So I just, that struck me as I read it that he's done, he's a God to be feared, right? He's the one that he says, fear me. Fearing the God is the beginning of the wisdom. And he says, I told you to not fear the other gods, but they have, they fear not the true God. They fear the the God of the Amorites. So uh, that is why the famine happens. And after this section in Judges 6, it starts the story of Gideon. So Boaz was probably a contemporary of Gideon. So to put it in the historical context. And then it says, a man in Bethlehem in Judah. So Bethlehem of Judah would have been very significant to the readers, or the initial readers of this book, because it was written during the, the pinnacle of David's reign. Bethlehem was where David was born, and it's also where Micah prophesies that Jesus will be born. It says that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab is a nation that was historically not hospitable to Israel. They, didn't, they weren't hospitable, and they, didn't, uh, they sought to curse Israel as they went through. So now we know the approximate time, place, and even the state of Israel's relationship with the Lord. I, I know he watches me. All right. I almost forgot it, too. All right. So now the characters are introduced in verse 2. The names of the family are Elimelech, which means to whom God is king, Naomi, the gracious, pleasant, lovely, delightful, Malon, the weakly, sickly, Kilion, pining, ailing, annihilation. So those names are important. Naomi's name is mentioned later. It gets flipped upside down, and Malon and Kilion kind of fulfill their names by dying. So they are also called Ephrathites here, and the significance of that is that Ephrath is an older name of Bethlehem. So I think this attaches their family to a, like a long history of being in Bethlehem. So they're, they're an important family, respective family. And... They go to Moab, they sojourn there, and something I want to point out is that this, this was one option to deal with the famine. One option that they could have chosen was to stay because God had sent a judge, a prophet, to tell the people why the famine had happened, and kind of when God does that, you know, he's, he's calling them back. It's, it's judgment, but also he's there, and he's... Um, there's an implied turning back. You have an opportunity to turn back. So one way to deal with the famine could have been to stay and be part of the nation turning back to the Lord. But they don't. They go to Moab. It says that they sojourn, which sojourn means to reside temporarily. 
So they're initially not going to stay there a long time. But then in, at the end of this verse, it says they remained there. There's just some things to think about as we go through. And then immediately after it says that, we get to verse 3, and Elimelech dies. And so their response, or what happens immediately after that, is that Melon and Kilion marry Moabite wives. So it seems that they're kind of settling in uh, to, in response to the things that are happening in their life. And so Melon and Kilion marry Moabite wives, and this was actually not unlawful. Marriage with Canaanite women was forbidden in the law, but Deuteronomy 23 says that Moabites were not to enter the assembly of the Lord kind of on a national level since they weren't hospitable to Israel as they went through the land and they actually sought to curse Israel. It's the story of Balaam when they hire Balaam to go and curse Israel and he ends up blessing them multiple times. And the names of these wives are Orpah, which roughly means turning the back, and Ruth, which means a friend. And then they live there for about 10 years. So again, it seems like they're, they're settling in a little bit. And then Mehlon and Kilion die. And there's no, we don't get commentary on why these events happen. But I think it's safe to say that their move to Moab, staying and kind of settling down by marrying Moabites, is at least not the best thing they could have done. It's not the best option they went with. But regardless of the reason, there is, this is a tragic thing to have happened to Naomi and to her new daughter-in-laws. They're left in a very poor state of affairs. Things have slowly gone from bad to worse, and now they're in, Naomi's in a land without, a foreign land without providers. So verse 6, as soon as Naomi hears of Israel's return of the favor of God, she determines to go back. They seem to pick up and go without much discussion or preparation. I don't think they had a lot of possessions to gather. And so in verse 7, they set out for Judah. This return that could have been a happy, they probably look forward to being a really happy return of their full family back to Israel is now filled with sorrow and emptiness. But they're finally turning their face toward the presence. You know, the Lord had visited his people. They're turning towards the presence of the Lord. I know he watches me. Yeah, there we go. I was going to have to tell the adults to do it too, so you picked up on it. All right. So on the way, Naomi determines to send the women back. So we get to verse 8 through 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. This exchange seems to be ceremonial. These women had become attached, very attached to Naomi and her family. Naomi had become her mother, their mother. And she is, in effect, releasing them from their allegiance to her. And this is a, there's a scope of this transfer of allegiance because she's kind of their mother, but she says, go back to your husband, to a new home, and to your people, and to your God. And she doesn't just release them, but she actually speaks a blessing on them. 
She says, the Lord, may the Lord deal kindly with you and provide rest with a new husband and home. And that was a, a challenge to me that we would be people that speak blessing on other people, that the Lord would deal kindly with them and fill them with good things. I think this is a distinguishing mark of righteous characters in Scripture. Abraham, Moses, David, prophets pronounce blessing on both God's people and foreign people. And this is a, a role that's fulfilled in Jesus, but carried out through his body. So this is a challenge to look for ways to verbally bless the people that you come in contact with. So Naomi kisses them, and this is a very uh, heartfelt moment. Their tearful reaction is probably part of their culture of mourning, but it's definitely heartfelt. And they both at first refuse to leave, and they declare that they will remain allied to her and to her people. But she continues to urge them in 11 through 13. Her response is very practical. She says, if you come with me, you will be without a husband or a family for the rest of your life. Even if the impossibilities of me having a husband and being pregnant right now, you would still have to wait a really long time to marry those multiple children. So I think, and one thing that she doesn't mention is that the possibility of them marrying Israelite men when they get back there. And I think that the reason she doesn't mention it is because it's probably more likely or less likely that that would happen than all the other things that she said would happen. So that makes the following events in this story even more amazing. So, uh, and then in 13, we get our first take from Naomi. Might be 13. Well, anyway, we get our first take from Naomi about her circumstances here. Her statement at the end of this argument, to quote Sean Freeman, is what a faithful person going through difficulty might look like. Um, So at the end of verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When she says it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, it could be rendered, it is far more bitter for me than for you. Basically, you have hope of some kind of semblance of a life but my situation is just devastated. It's hopeless. And this is not what we might think. I don't think she's saying I am bitter toward God about the position he's placed me in. I think we'd do better to compare her response to Job's response at his tragic loss. So after losing everything he had, which was a lot, we read in Job 1, uh, 21 through 22, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, does Job charge God with wrongdoing? It says no. And I don't think Naomi does either. But who does she attribute these calamities to? She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What would our lives the situations we find ourselves in look like if we had this kind of understanding of the, the hand of the Lord in everything, this kind of faith that's practical and just a simple belief that accepts everything as from the hand of the Lord. I know he watches me. All right. So verse 14, they wept again. 
a very heart-rending moment, and Orpah turns her back. She goes back to her people and to her gods. And gods probably refers more to what Orpah was native to, what was comfortable to her, more than a condemnation of her decision to go back. Her people and her gods also would set up Ruth's response. Ruth doesn't want her people and her gods. She wants Naomi's. And I think, so I think what's highlighted is not that Orpah went back, but what Ruth was overcoming to cling to Naomi and her god and her people. She has to watch her sister-in-law do the thing that is far more likely to result in a full and happy life. And she also has to overcome Naomi's urging. And Naomi's the most important person in her life, so that would, be, that would mean a lot that she's saying these things to her. But her, Ruth's response is incredible. In verse 14, again, it says that she clung to Naomi. And I have a couple of references for this word of, of cling to give an idea of what this just grasping onto means. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And 1 Kings 11 is talking about Solomon and foreign gods. It says, The Lord said to his people, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these wives these, uh, that had other gods in love. So this is the way that, that Ruth is clinging to Naomi. It's a desperate grasping onto and refusal to let go despite circumstances. And in verse 16 through 17, we get her declaration. And it's not just a declaration, it's also an oath. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is an oath of faith. A faith that's loyal, not with a lack of evidence. There's lots of evidence, but it's evidence that... that indicate that things are going to be bad in the future. The, the evidence raises the stakes of her faith. We generally talk about faith as the same thing as belief, that I mentally acknowledge the things that God says are true. It does contain that, faith does contain that, but it also has legs. Ruth is not taking a leap of faith as if she's uncertain of the future, but will trust that God will make things better. She is teeth-grittingly, white-knucklingly bent on following Naomi and her God and her people with the express knowledge that her earthly situation will almost definitely be miserable. The allegiance is not about hoping things will get better. It's about belonging to a person. Naomi's fate becomes Ruth's fate. Ruth pronounces a curse on herself if she doesn't, go, she doesn't live out her faith. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And here she invokes the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Naomi's God in this oath. So she's clearly allying herself with the God of Naomi, the God of Israel. How can we make this statement our own, this kind of allegiance to the Lord and to his people? Maybe something like this. My life is 100% intent on being with God and his people 
No worldly situation or opportunity will draw me away. That would draw me away from God and his people. Are we so determined and desperate for God and his people that we would not just make this claim, but ask God to bring unimaginable tragedy on us if we didn't? I know he watches me. So, verse 18, Ruth's faith stops the mouth of Naomi. In verse 19, they go on to Judah. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? It's not the, probably the warmest welcome, but there is some comfort, I think, in being back among the people you belong to. It's as if they're saying, is this downcast, heavily aged, foreign leading woman you, Naomi? <laughs> but it's still her people. It's people that know her. And I think that that's significant. There's some solace in that. May we be the kind of people that bring comfort by being people's people. She is unrecognizable. She left as a respected member of society with her full family and came back haggard, puffy-eyed, husband and childless, with a woman of strange origin in tow. And here we get an even fuller expression of Naomi's, how she's processing this state of affairs. Verse, Verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I was full. I was the gracious, pleasant, lovely, delightful. Now I am the bitter or bitterness. You could render her as saying, call me Mara for the Almighty has cruelly marred me. Again, she doesn't seem to be saying that she's bitter at God, but that what the Lord has brought her through has put her in a bitter state. Naomi is clearly in despair and hopeless. But again, Naomi gives us what a faithful person going through difficulty might look like. Further evidence of this can be seen in the name that she uses for the Lord at the end. She says, the Almighty has brought this on me. And this, this name has a broad scope of definition. Some of the definitions include my destroyer, my rain giver, my demon, mountain, my mountain of the mountains, mountain moon of the two mountains of the hill country, all knowing, the primary nurturer, God all bountiful or God all sufficient, self-sufficient. But here it's probably most in reference to God's power and his omnipotence. What my God has determined will come to pass and cannot be changed. I know he watches me. So think about Ruth standing there. She's the outsider. She's the stranger. And she's referred to as part of the emptiness of Naomi's return. She says, I went away full. I came back empty. And Naomi, or Ruth is standing right there. She said that. But we'll continue to see Ruth's character as we get to chapter 2 next week. Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
So the attention is turned back to Ruth, and the story so far has brought a Moabite widow to Bethlehem. So as we close, we've got some application. We should be like Naomi. Acknowledge your circumstances as from the Lord, regardless of what they are or why they've happened to you. We should be like Ruth, acknowledging the Lord's hand in all our ways, doggedly, teeth-grittingly, and sometimes white-knucklingly clinging to Jesus and his people, even in the face of our earthly situation possibly ending in misery. Jesus told his disciples that following him would be hard. He said things like, you'll have no place to lay your head. People will hate you. It's a serious call. But he also said that those who have left everything for him will actually receive the greatest thing. They'll receive him. They'll receive God himself. Eternal life with him. Matthew 19 says, Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Luke 5, 27 to 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. May we be people who leave everything to be with Jesus and his people. I know he watches me. Father, thank you that these things are true, that you do see us. Thank you for the the story of seemingly insignificant characters, foreign women that become part of your redemption story. Thank you that you enter into our lives and that you see us and that, that pray that we would be like Naomi, that we would acknowledge you in all of our ways, that we would see your hand in every single thing that happens to us and that you would meet us that, that it, we would see that it's your hand. It's you that is near to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you've shown uh, in such a fuller way your love for us in Jesus' advent and him coming to be with us and to tell us about the love that you have for us, that you've had for your people since the beginning of creation. Thank you that we, that we are here because of your mercy, that you see us now. I pray that you continue to be with us as we continue to worship you this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.